All right, Mark chapter 10, 1 through 12. Let's read it together. It says, And he left there and went to the region of Judea, and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses say? Lost my place because I was mixing my microphone over here. Hold on. Um, where am I? Anybody? Hey, you guys are reading. Good job. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and, said, and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, no, let not man separate. And in the house of the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is God's word. Father, thank you so much this morning that we can open the word with confidence. And God, passages like these, Lord, they deserve our attention. All of scripture deserves our attention. But passages like these, Lord, they're, they're sometimes confusing, Lord. Help us, Spirit of God, come into this room and lead and guide our thinking, shape our thinking, God. This isn't about what Sam thinks or what Philippi thinks or what Western evangelicals think or what scholars think. This is, Jesus, what did you mean and and what do you think and how do we conform our brains to think like yours? How do we get our minds to be surrendered to your will and be part of your kingdom because you're the king, God? So, Lord, humbly we open your word with trepidation, God, with concern for how we can apply it appropriately, Father. Wanting to honor you, Lord, as the holy and sovereign, set-apart God of the universe. In Jesus' name, amen. Grab a seat, guys. All right. Have you ever thought about this? Maybe I'm the only one, don't know, but have you ever thought about this? How would you explain the color blue to someone who's never seen anything in their entire life. Have you ever thought about that? You'd say, oh, it's, it's like the ocean. And they would go, oh, what's, what's the ocean look like? like oh, okay. It's like the sky. And they'd say, oh, what's the sky look like? Okay, um, what's like, it's like purple-y. It's purple-y, but it's, it's a little more like there's less harsh purple, softer, maybe closer to, they're like, what's purple? How, do you, how would you do that, right? I mean, when you have no reference for something. Let me, let me give you another more ridiculous illustration. Um, and this one might make you laugh. Let's say you had a time machine. Wouldn't that be cool? Let's say you had a time machine. And you, and you got in your time machine um, and you went back to the Stone Age, an age where, where electricity had not yet been discovered and where technology was not part of life. And you brought with you, you brought uh, uh, 12 Apple Watches, and you, you know, these are really, they're amazing. They're in the nice Apple packaging. It's just so fun to open, you know. They still have a little plastic on, this, on the screen. And you brought these Apple Watches in the time machine. Um, 
And, and, and you brought him to the Stone Age, and you said, hey, I'm going to give these to you guys, and just give him a brief explanation. Hey, these are great. You know, you can tell time. You can check your emails. You can, uh, you can um, check your text while you're pretending to listen to somebody. It's great. Um, and, and this is great. So here you go, and, um, and there you go. And you get in your time machine, and you go back to your, to your time. And then you come, you come back, and it's been 100 years, right? Because it's a time machine, so you can come back whenever you want. Um, you, you come back in your time machine. It's been 100 years. And all of a sudden, you get off the, um, the time machine, and, 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 and there's all of this weird arguing going on between everybody. There's two sects. See, here's what happened. You left. They didn't really understand what to do with them. Uh, they don't have electricity, so they can't charge them. They know that if, if they, they do something to them, they light up. So one of the guys had this idea that, hey, what if I hit this thing against a tree? And it lights up. So they started a whole theological sect called the uh, Triatarians, okay? Uh, the, the, the tr- they're triologists, right? And so they, they found that if it hit the watch against the tree, it would light up. And then the, the, but there was another group that said, well, no, we found that if you hit the watch against the rock, you hit the watch against a rock, it lights up. So these are the rockologists, right? The rock the rockterians. Um, and so, so you have the triologists and the Rocktarians, and, and they've been fighting for hundreds of years, and you come back, and, and, they, and, and, and they don't know who you are, and you say, what are you guys arguing about? They're like, well, we're arguing about whether you hit it against a rock or against a tree. And they're like, well, where do you stand? Where's your position? What would you say? You wouldn't say, well, I'm a Rocktarian. You would say, you missed the whole point, guys. You miss, you're, just, you're totally confused, and you're, you're, you're damaging the thing I gave you because you don't understand how to use it. Now, that sounds ridiculous, okay? Uh, this sounds silly, but, but here's the thing. This is exactly what Jesus is dealing with. This is exactly what Jesus is coming into. Jesus is stepping into an era very similar to ours, actually, in a lot of ways. Uh, the first century where this thing called marriage has, has really just been obliterated where it's been just disassembled, it's been misunderstood, it's been destroyed, it's been, it's just been smacked against rocks and trees, essentially, um, not really used as it was intended to be used. And here comes Jesus, the, the creator and the originator of marriage, the one who thought up the whole thing. And they're basically going to ask him, are you a rocktarian or a, a, a stumparian or whatever? They're, they're basically going to ask him, what do you think? And Jesus is just going to be like, whatever he's going to say is going to sound extraterrestrial, Right? You ever wonder why sometimes Jesus says things and they sound odd? It's because he's from another kingdom. He's from another world. Imagine, like, seriously, try to imagine explaining an Apple Watch to somebody in Jesus' day. Where would you start? They, would, they wouldn't understand, right? So this Jesus is trying to explain some of the inner workings and the theological underpinnings of this thing called marriage and divorce and all these kinds of things to, to this crowd, and they're compl- it's completely lost on them. Now, keeping that in mind, I want you to understand how similar our age is to Jesus' age. Um, obviously, it's different, 2,000 years removed. But, you know, um, the theologians of Jesus' day really were the gatekeepers. They really set up what was permissible ethically in the day. And the, in those days, the gatekeepers were the Pharisees. So whatever the Pharisees saw as being appropriate, they would basically um, say everyone else could do. And within Judaism, people would follow suit. In our day, I think that actually the Pharisees, um, it's definitely not the pastors anymore. It's definitely not the Bible teachers. or the, the, It's actually, it's Hollywood, right? The, it's, it's TikTok, those are the theologians of our day. It's, it's cancel culture, man. It's like they decide, I mean, Will Smith and Jada, they're deciding for us what marriage should look like. 
And, they're, and, and then really downstream from what Hollywood says is, and what, what Facebook says, social media stars, that's what our culture accepts. So in Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees. In our day, I think it's, it's people of influence. It's influencers. But regardless, in Jesus' day, he was coming into a world that was saturated with divorce. It was just everywhere. Everyone was getting divorced. Everyone had been divorced. Everyone was planning to get on, you know, divorced. And it was, um, but it was very baptized in a very relig- in a religious system that made it feel uh, very normal. So just keeping that in mind, I want you to know that as we walk into the passage. Now, we're going to talk about the subject of divorce and remarriage this morning. Um, and I've been trepidatious of this passage. I'll just be honest with you. Um, because I understand um, compassionately that everyone in this room has open nerve endings, with this topic. Uh, Either you've been divorced, either you've um, had parents that were divorced, or you have friends that have been divorced, or you grew up in a divorce home. Whatever whatever it is, there's something in your story this morning that if you were to sit around and and, and talk about it, um, it could probably bring you to, to tears. And so the way that we talk about this is very important, but Jesus talks about it. He doesn't shy away from it. He, he brings it head on. So we're going to see what he has to say. I'm going to try this morning to walk the tightrope between truth and grace, okay, to, to be true to the passage, to tell you guys what it says. This passage demands that we, we look at what it truly says, but it also um, needs to be viewed through, through grace. So we'll do our best to do that. I'd ask that you give me some grace this morning. Um, if you have a position on divorce, and some of you do, and you're ready to pummel me maybe over the head with it, uh, I would just invite you to give me some grace because this is an exposition, not a systematic explanation. And I think, I, know, I think you know what I mean by that. I'm, I'm teaching a particular passage here. So we're not going to talk about every possible scenario that could come up for divorce. But I would be happy to, to talk with you afterwards if you have questions. So let's look at the passage. Let's see what's going on here. We're, we're starting in verse 1 of chapter 10. Are you guys ready? Here we go. He left there and went to the region of Judea. And beyond the Jordan and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Now, Jesus is transitioning in his three-year ministry from the, um, the area of the Galilee, where the lake, the Sea of Galilee is. He's transitioning towards Jerusalem. Jesus' goal has always been to go to the cross. We're going to celebrate that on Friday. And he didn't just want to go to the cross. He went to the cross so that he could go to the grave and he could what? Rise again. We're going to celebrate that on Sunday. Jesus' eyes are fixed on Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And as we progress through the narrative of Mark's gospel, we get closer and closer to the pinnacle of the story, which is Jesus on the cross. So Jesus has left the Galilee, sort of Hickville, the northern part of Israel, He's making his way. He's in Perea. And Perea, you might note, this is important, Perea was the district that was under the governorship of Herod Antipas. Okay, remember him? He came up previously in our narrative. Uh, He's the one that took the head of John the Baptist. Now, Mark's attention for us is not on the teachings of Jesus, which is interesting because Jesus spent most of his time teaching. Not healing, teaching. But Mark doesn't seem as interested, uh, Mark is the author, by the way, of the gospel we're reading. He doesn't seem as interested in the teachings of Jesus as he does the arguments of Jesus, the dialogues of Jesus. That's where Mark tends to to lead our attention. And so this morning, he just says Jesus is teaching, but he doesn't get into what Jesus was saying. What he does get into is the argument, the Q&A that comes afterwards, and that's kind of where our story takes place. So verse 2. The Pharisees, okay, these religious lawyers of the day, the, the cultural gatekeepers, those who decided what the virtue signaling was of the day, okay, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man 
to divorce his wife. Now, notice that what are they doing here? They're, they're testing him. And testing is actually entrapment. They're looking to snare him. They're looking to entangle him or defame him. They're, they're looking to defeat Jesus ultimately. They've been at this for some time. But as Jesus gets closer to Jerusalem, um, the, the, the higher uppers are coming into his purview and they're trying to entrap Jesus. Now, how are they trying to trap him? Well, they ask him this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What is behind this question? What, what's going on behind this question? I need to give you a little bit of cultural background to help you understand why they're asking this question. First of all, it's important to note that in Matthew's parallel account, uh, Matthew's parallel account, that Jesus actually, we find that Jesus actually said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? I don't know why Mark leaves that out. I don't know why he shorthands that. Uh, but he's assuming that we, that we understand that's what they're really asking. So what the Pharisees are asking Jesus is not, can you divorce? It's, why can you divorce? Or how can you divorce? What reason is permissible to divorce your wife? And you notice it says, for a man to divorce his wife. Because a woman actually was not allowed to divorce her husband. She could make her husband's life miserable so that he divorced her, which probably happened, right? Um, but in this patriarchal culture, uh, really, it was, it was the man that could leave the wife. And so they're asking him this, this, the question as far as what is permissible grounds for divorce. Now, if you got on Google right now, don't do it. Okay, stay with me. Um, if you got on Google right now, uh, it's so weird preaching to a group that has Google in their pocket. You know, it's like, it's kind of intimidating. Uh, if you went to Google right now and you typed in the, the divorce debate within Christianity, you would find a very similar um, ecosystem to what Jesus is dealing with here. There's all kinds of positions. These Christians line up on this side. These Christians line up on that side. And then there's a lot of gray in the middle. So, so Jesus is coming into a culture that, um, that really cannot decide what it thinks. But here's basically what, uh, what they think for the most part. There was two schools uh, within the Pharisees, within the Pharisaical traditions. There was two schools of thought when it came to divorce. The first was called Shemai. Can you say Shemai? The second was Hillel. Can you say Hillel? Okay, these are the two theological thoughts, uh, the two theological schools. Shemai was the conservative school, okay? There's always liberal and conservative. Nothing's changed, right? The liberal school, or pardon me, the conservative school of Shemai said divorce is only permissible with what theologians call the exception clause, which is adultery, okay? So only adultery is permissible grounds for divorce. Uh, that was not the common view. The common view was the view of Hillel which said anything was grounds for a man to divorce his wife. And really, it's all centered around this one verse. You know, there wasn't much in the Old Testament about divorce. Uh, they found one little verse, and they really twisted it. Here's the verse, Deuteronomy 24. says, when a, t when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some, listen, indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, and then he sort of goes on from there. The idea is Moses is, is alluding to the fact that divorce is permitted if the wife shows some kind of indecency. So the whole debate is about what does indecency mean? Does indecency mean she committed adultery? Or does indecency mean, like the school of Hillel would say, she, the classic funny example is she burned my eggs, right? 
Um, she didn't burn the bacon because they don't eat bacon, right? But she, she burned the eggs. Or she, she let her hair down in a promiscuous way in front of another man. Or she, she showed her ankle. Or, or she talked back to me. That's indecency. So the school of Hallel had really permeated the culture of the day. So Jesus is, is not walking in this, this super pious, righteous culture. He's walking in a very religious culture that has found ways to do the sins they want to do and to baptize them and make them feel spiritual. The school of Hillel was the common school of the day. So that means that a very large majority of the people Jesus interacted with had been divorced. Now, it's important to recognize that. Now, they're trying to trap Jesus in three ways here. The first way is theologically. They're trying to get Jesus to undermine the authority of the Torah, the scriptures. Uh, the second way they're trying to trap him is socially. See, if Jesus comes out and he's a staunch, hard-right conservative on the view of marriage, they can cancel him, right? They can cancel him because, uh, because he's going against the, the, the majority report of the day. Everybody liked the idea that, uh, all the men, I would say, liked the idea that they could divorce their wives, right? So they can maybe trap Jesus that way. Or another way is politically, and what do I mean here? Where is Jesus? He's in Perea. Who is the governor of Perea? Herod, Herod, Antipas, what was Herod known for in the book of Mark? For taking off the head of John the Baptist. Why? Because John the Baptist spoke out against his illicit divorce. Spoke out against Herod who married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist lost his head over it. So the Pharisees are smart. You know that? These aren't, these aren't dumb people. They're very intelligent. They know the culture. They know how to be hypocrites. They know how to get people killed and, and, and make it look righteous. And they know that if they can get Jesus to take a hardline stance on a very politically charged, socially charged issue, Herod might come in and do the same thing to Jesus he did to John the Baptist. Do you see the trap here? Is it starting to come into view a little bit here? They, they know they can get Jesus on one of these things. So this is all of the reasons they're bringing this question, question to him. Now, Jesus is wise. He knows what he's doing. And he knows the culture. And he knows the trap. And so he's going to respond very wisely. Look at what he says. Verse 3. He answered them, what did Moses command you? In other words, what, what's the passage that you guys are all arguing about? Let's, let's talk about it. Let's get into the scriptures. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, um, Jesus is not disagreeing with the fact that Moses allowed uh, a certificate of divorce, right? What he's interested in is why, right? Why, what, what did Moses see as legitimate grounds for divorce? And verse 5, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command. Do you notice that Jesus clumps them with the hard-hearted Israelites? He says, because of the hardness of your heart. In other words, whatever the spirit of unbelief and hardness that was in the wilderness, it's, a, it's the same thing happening here. Okay, so what is, what's Jesus' point? I'll just make it very simple. We'll, we'll come back to this. Uh, Jesus' point is that divorce was not an accommodation, or pardon me, Jesus' point was divorce was an accommodation and a toleration for the purpose of mitigation, okay? Um, divorce was an accommodation and a toleration for the purpose of mitigation. Mitigation of what? Um, worse evil. Here's the reality. Moses wrote this or gave this accommodation because men were divorcing their wives. And in a patriarchal society, if you are not married and you are no longer under your parents' roof, you are destitute, 
You have no rights. You have no voice. You have no authority. So these men in Moses' day and in Jesus' day were just divorcing their wives. They're going to do it anyways, whether God likes it or not. And so Moses very kindly gives this accommodation to who? For the women, so that they have a proof, a certificate of divorce that they can take to another marriage or just culturally to say, look, I'm not a floozy. I didn't cheat on my husband. Uh, You know, he left me and here's the thing to prove it. So Moses is really, he's accommodating the reality of a sinfully broken world. This is kind of like morphine. It's the mercy of morphine. Is morphine ideal? Should you just take morphine? Because when do you take morphine? You take morphine when your leg's been blown off. And it's a mercy of kindness, right? When, when someone is, is in the hospital, they're in severe pain, we, we, we show mercy by, by giving them something that's going to relieve some of that pain. And so Moses, in introducing divorce here, in fact, he didn't introduce divorce, it was already there. In, in giving this permission of divorce, he's saying, look, the, these, these marriages that are already blown up because of sin, we're going to give grace here by showing that, that uh, by, by this certificate, essentially. It's almost like a, a, this marriage is a crushed leg, and the divorce certificate is an amputation. Is it good to ever lose your leg? No. But what's worse, a leg that's been crushed and is going to infect your whole body or an amputated leg? No, th- this is kind of what Jesus is getting at. He's saying, um, he's saying, Moses didn't give you divorce. He didn't introduce divorce as though this is God's ideal or God's desire or God's design. Divorce was a reality because sin is a reality. Now, Jesus goes on here, and instead of entangling with endless scenarios, and this is what we do when we argue about things, we go, well, yeah, but what about this? And what about that? Instead of doing that, Jesus is going to hold to the high standard of what marriage truly is. He does it in verse 6. He says, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay, now I'm just going to, one sentence. This is what Jesus means here. God's original design was one for one, not one for two or one for later. Are you with me? Okay. God's original design for marriage was one for one, male, female. He didn't make Adam and two Eves. He didn't make Adam and a spare Eve. He didn't make uh, a spare Adam for Eve in case something went wrong, right? That Jesus is saying the original design, God's original pattern, original template was one man, one woman. And they are meant and designed to complement one another. They have differences, strengths that, that really are synergistic to one another. And that, and that together they are better than apart. Verse 7. Then he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. This is uh, often called leave and cleave, right? Uh, we go over this stuff in premarital counseling. If, you, if you've been married, you know that this, this idea that God invented of marriage is that you would leave the institution of your, own, your, your, your original family and you would start a new family. What that means is, is that you, be, you create a new family system. You create a new family system, and this is why, you know who really loses in divorce? Kids. Because you, you've just shattered their new family system, okay? Uh, anyone who's seen divorce up close knows that, that kids, they, they pay the ultimate toll because the new family system has been broken. And so this idea was that God uh, was like, you're going to create a new institution. You're going to leave your original institution in which you grew up in your, 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 your childhood family, and you're going to start a new family, and that's God's design, Verse 8, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. 
What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Okay, what is Jesus saying here? He says, this means that marriage is a physical and spiritual union that is unseverable. And by unseverable, I mean that even if you sever it, there is always going to be ramifications. There's always going to be pain. There's always going to be taking two things that have become one and ripping them apart hurts, doesn't it? It's painful. Now, Jesus, what he's doing here is rather than getting into the weeds of of a million uh, qualifiers and a million what about this and what about that, he says, can we just go back to Genesis and can we remember what marriage was intended to be? Can we go back and look at what the smartwatch was made for instead of smacking it against the rock and hoping maybe it'll light up? He said, you guys want to argue about divorce? Let's talk about marriage. And see, that's really, as Christians, we're in the business of renewal. We're in the the business of getting back to the original pattern of what God had intended for his creation rather than trying to to find a way to, to, to tape together broken things. Now, having said that, God works in the brokenness, as we'll see. Let's move on. Now, the disciples are very concerned about Jesus' response, as I think they were probably a lot of times. They're sitting there listening, and they're thinking, ooh, we got to get some clarification. So they get into the house, and they do what they do all the time. They say, Jesus, can you give us a little more, please? Can you tell us a little bit more? And now Jesus is he's off record, right? Okay, He's off record. He's in the house. He's with his boys. He sits down, and, and in the house, it says the disciples asked him again about this matter. Now, why are they, why are they asking him? I would imagine that quite a few of the disciples had probably been divorced. I don't have proof of that, but I, but I would imagine that, that probably, considering the, uh, the, the, the divorce rates probably of the day, some of these men had been divorced and, and perhaps had been remarried. Some of them perhaps were desiring to be divorced, right? I mean, Peter's like, uh, I was, yeah, I got plans. Um, I mean, who knows? These guys are, maybe they're concerned about what Jesus has just said. Maybe they're worried about Jesus's popularity, and sometimes the disciples kind of felt like they were Jesus' PR department. You know, like, Jesus, do you realize what you just said? I mean, you drew a pretty hard line here. I don't know, but he, he, they bring up the question to him. In verse 11, he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, that, that's, that's all he says. Dang, right? If you get, I mean, let me just, this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying if, if you got divorced and got remarried, you committed adultery. Okay, that's, that's heavy, right? And he doesn't give any qualifiers. So what do we do with that? Let me, let me just tell you one thing. When we, when we take a look at the parallel account in Matthew, um, in Matthew 19, we do find that in parallel account, Jesus does include this, and it's the exception clause. He says, other than in the case of adultery. So really what Jesus is saying here, when you put Matthew together with Mark, is that, um, is that um, when you put the two together, is that other than adultery, uh, remarriage, it seems, is, is uh, illegitimate. Okay, now that's, that's, that's hard. That's a hard line thing. Now, just a couple little side notes here, by the way, a couple interesting observations. When Jesus says that if a man commits adultery against his wife, that he's committing adultery against her, that was completely new thinking. Because, see, it was never in the Bible even or in the culture, it was never that you committed adultery against your wife. It was always against the husband of that woman. So Jesus is actually elevating here the position and the importance um, of women in this passage, uh, by saying you're sinning against your wife if you do this. Now, um, 
what do we do with this? Okay, what do we do with this? Uh, hopefully I've created some curiosity for you, okay? What do we do with this? How are we to think about this? Um, what, when we step back, how, how do we understand how we're to think about um, divorce? This brings up massive amounts of questions in your mind, okay? You're, you're perhaps wondering, what does this mean? Um, perhaps you're thinking of scenarios and nuances that you want clarification. As a pastor, I sit with a lot of people um, that, that ask this question. Hey, I've been divorced, um, you know, hey, my, my wife left me, or I, I left my wife, this was in a former part of my life, or, or hey, you know, I've been remarried, or I've been remarried multiple times, or what does that mean for me? How, how does this interact with me? What I want to do this morning is I, I don't want to make the mistake of over-applying a passage to a particular scenario you have in your mind. I don't, I don't want to do that. What I don't want to do is do more than what Jesus did here. Let me remind you that when these guys came to Jesus, they were asking him for a general principle, not a particular application. They didn't come to Jesus and say, hey, what about Betty over here? Or what about Jimmy over there? How would you handle that? That's not what they did. They, they came and asked a general question. Jesus gives a general principle. So we need to handle this uh, in a way that... that doesn't give hard, fast rules. Now, if you want to find hard, fast rules, if you want to find really, really, um, you know, no gray guys, go to YouTube. You'll find them everywhere. They'll tell you exactly how you're, you're in sin and you're this and you're that. And then read the comments, man. People are brutal. But what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give you some things to think about because I think that's what Jesus does here. Rather than give a one-size-fits-all Jesus gives some things to think about. If you were scaling a wall, a rock wall, what do they tell you when you're rock climbing? You ever gone? They tell you you need three points of contact. Three points of contact. Well, Jesus, I think, in our passage actually gives us four points of contact. Four things that you should ask yourself when you're trying to discern and determine what God thinks about a particular divorce situation or remarriage situation, okay? Four things. Jesus is going to cite four things that I think we should think about. And again, the goal isn't to say, here's the hard, fast rule. The goal is to say, what does Jesus want us to think about? when we're trying to understand these things. Some of you might counsel friends on what to do. Some of you might have a, a situation in your own life where you're trying to decide what to do. And I think that God's, or I think that Jesus gives us guidance here. So, four things. If you want to jot them all down, I'll just go through one by one. Number one, God's authority. Jesus cites God's authority. Number two, Jesus cites God's sovereignty. Number three, Jesus cites God's provisionality. And number four, Jesus cites God's superiority. Those are going to be our four points of contact, four things we need to consider when we're trying to delineate a particular messy situation uh, regarding divorce and remarriage. So number one, God's authority. This is a, a very simple point. I won't belabor it. Here's the thing. Jesus, when he was asked the question, he didn't go to anything other than Scripture to make his point. Okay? What did he appeal to? He appealed to God's authority, God's word. And Christians, I got to warn you, okay? For some reason, we love God's word until it says something we don't like. And then we prefer Google or we prefer some idiot on a forum that says he has a PhD. And we go, well, I like that interpretation. He cites data. He cites sociology. He cites statistics. He cites, uh, that's great. And I'm not anti-science. I'm not anti-statistics. I'm not anti-anecdotes. But guys, what does the word of God say? Jesus makes no, he just takes a beeline for the word of God. 
He says, what did Moses really say? What was Moses' accommodation? We need to be people of the book in every circumstance. Not just people of the book when it's warm and fuzzy. People of the book in every area. So I would encourage you guys uh, to study the scripture. There's a lot more in here about divorce and remarriage than just the passage we're looking at. 1 Corinthians 7, Matthew 19, uh, Deuteronomy, uh, I think it's chapter 20. There's lots of different places. I would encourage you to study that. But God's word is our authority, and Jesus reminds us of that. So first point of contact as we're scaling the rock wall, God's word. What does God's word say? Okay, what does God's word say? Number two, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. Jesus appeals to God's sovereignty. Where? In verse 8. He says, The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Okay? Who's doing the one fleshing? It's God. It's a spiritual reality that's happening. And look at verse 9. This is a, a verse to remember. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I actually, I don't even know if I can get it off. I actually got that, I got that stamped on the inside of my ring because I wanted to remember something with my wife and that was not that. It, I, wanted, I wanted to remember that this was not our marriage. Whose marriage is it? It's God's marriage. You know, we think about marriage all wrong. We think about it as, as some kind of a modular thing that we've created and because we've created it, it's my body, my choice, right? My marriage, I can jettison it if I would like to. But here's the problem. The Bible talks about marriage not as though it's a contract, but as though it's an object, a living, breathing organism. God creates marriage. That marriage is the unity and the oneness and uh, the togetherness of, of a new organism, you and your spouse. And it's a spiritual and a physical reality. So to sever that is actually to abort something that you do not have sovereign control over. Now, can you abort your marriage? Can you murder your marriage? Yes. But who do you answer to? You answer to the one that created it. I know this is intense, but this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying you're, you're getting out of your pay grade, see? Uh, divorce is something that only really God can grant because God is the one that has sole rights over the marriage. It is something that God has made. We tend to treat, um, you know, why does this matter? Well, we tend to treat things more carefully when they're not ours, don't we? Like if I'm borrowing my friend's car, I'm going to be very careful with that car because it's not my car. Guys, listen to me. Your marriages, they're not yours. You don't own them. They don't belong to you. You say, well, I got in the altar and I popped the question and I, okay, well, you could say that about a baby, right? I had a small part to play making babies. Are they mine? No. Are they my wife? She carried them for nine months. No, they belong to the Lord. They are his and we are not to abort what God creates. Okay, we're pro-life. We're pro-life. God creates marriages. They're his marriages. They belong to him. So what does that mean? It means that if we want to terminate what God has created, who do we appeal to? We do not appeal to the, new, the no-fault state of Oregon. Did you know we live in a no-fault state? You know what that means? It means you can divorce for any reason that you want to in this state. You can have an abortion in this state. You can get a sex change in this state. You can do whatever you want in this state except follow Jesus and uh, think about his real ethics, okay? So we don't appeal to Kate Brown. We don't appeal to the Supreme Court. Who owns the marriage? God owns the marriage. So I don't care what Oregon says, right? God owns the marriage. It's like selling a timeshare that, that you have partners in and not asking them if that's okay. It's not your marriage. You may have a part in it, but it's his 
is marriage. So what do we do? We bring it to the body of Christ. We bring it before the word of Christ. We bring it before the spirit of Christ. And we say, Father, would you lead and guide how we are to care for this thing that you have created? Now, having said that, number three is very important as we think about these things. Our third foothold, our third handhold, if you will, God's provisionality. Jesus cites God's provisionality. Okay, here's the thing I need you to know. God's not stupid. He knows that the marriage institution has been shattered. He knows that sin is a reality. That's why he sent his son. So so don't see God as some idealistic jerk in the sky who doesn't understand how much your husband has hurt you or your wife has wounded you. Don't see God as some idealistic jerk in the sky that doesn't understand how miserable your life is. Okay, he sent his son to come into the world because he knows he understands that Genesis 3, you know, you know what the first thing through the windshield was in the car wreck of the fall? Marriage. When, 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 when God said, this is what the cursed world's going to look like, he said, it looks like marriage being dysfunctional. He said, women are going to strive to be the leader, and men are going to domineer over women. Childbirth, the institution of marriage, or the, of family, is going to be painful. The curse, the the thing that took the the biggest blow in the curse was the institution of marriage and family. So Jesus is not stupid. He understands. He knows. He understands the pain and the reality of sin. We understand that the real enemy is not divorce. The real enemy is what? Sin. If it weren't for sin, there would be no divorce. We divorce because of sin, either sin done to us or sin done by us, but sin ultimately destroys marriages. It does, and that's why the ultimate enemy is always sin. The point is that divorce is not preferred by God, and it was not designed by God, but divorce is tolerated by God for a time. It's tolerated by God to mitigate the extent of sin's savagery. Okay, now here's, here's where you have to um, think about each situation, each scenario, To tell someone, and the church is so guilty of this, the church is so guilty, telling women to stay with abusive men because of too hard line of an application of this verse is a misunderstanding of God's heart, isn't it? God loves marriage. God loves the sanctity of marriage. You know what else God loves? People. You know what else God loves? His kids. Would God say, I prefer the sanctity of a marriage over the safety and the sanctity of a soul? You gotta talk to him about that. I would never counsel someone to stay in a marriage that was abusive. Now, abusive gets really gray, though, right? Well, he told me I was fat. Okay. Uh, well, that's not really abusive, okay? Um, but, but seriously, th- we have to realize that God is a God of provision. God realizes and recognizes our situation. Guys, he knows your pain. He knows your struggle. He knows what you're dealing with. And he wants you to invite him into it. Don't shut him out and talk to some stupid psychologist, who's only studied sociology and doesn't have a word what God, doesn't have a clue what God's word says, talk to the Lord. He is your champion. He loves you. He's your father. Lord, you gave me this marriage and it's hurting me. Like a, like a leg that's wounded and infected. Do, do I cut it off or do I keep it? I don't know. What do I do? He cares. He knows. He's in it with you. And Lord, help you if you get on YouTube and start writing fiery comments against people because they're not drawing a hard enough line for you. The internet is a cesspool for people to hurt one another without understanding the backstory. And that's what we need to be careful of. That's what we need to be careful of. 
there's so much more complexity. Here's the thing. Jesus brings it. Where does Jesus bring it? He brings it to the heart. He says, look, the problem is the heart. And God knows the heart. And Moses had to give you this provision because he knows God's heart. Uh, that if, you're already, if your heart's already hardened, you're already going to divorce. Let's make sure it's the least painful ever. Let's make sure it's the least painful possible. But Jesus is concerned for the heart. He wants to know your heart. He wants to know why do you want to divorce? So the heart must be the most significant data point as we look at it. Now, moving on. God's superiority. Now, this is the one that I think is interesting. And this might take a turn you weren't expecting, okay? Uh, This is interesting. Now, to get to this point, we need to go over to the parallel account in Matthew. Okay, so we're going to flip over really quick to Matthew chapter 19. This, I think, is the key to the whole thing here. The key to the whole thing, we need to, we need to consider our fourth, fourth point of contact is not only uh, God's sovereignty, God's authority, God's provisionality. We need to consider God's superiority. And to see that, let's look at Matthew 19. So uh, a lot of the same stuff in here. Pharisees come up to him, ask him, uh, test him. What about divorce, et cetera, et cetera. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 um, where Jesus responds because Matthew includes some extra things that Mark didn't put in there, and I think that they're helpful for us. So Matthew 19, 8, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Okay, we've already looked at that. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, here's where the story continues. Matthew takes us further into the narrative, and it's very interesting. The disciples said to him, this is so funny, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Drama queens, right? I mean, like, well, if that's, if that's, I think I just spit on you guys. I'm so sorry. If that's the, uh, you shouldn't have sat there. Um, if that's the reason, right? If that's how hardcore you're going to meet Jesus, well, I'm just not going to get married. I'll take my ball and go home, right? That's basically what they're saying. I mean, it's kind of hilarious, right? And Jesus is so funny. Like, he, he's kind of like, yeah, sure. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Look what he says. He said to them, not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given. What what saying? The saying that they just said, that it's better to not get married. Jesus is saying, yeah, you know, it actually, for, for those whom it is given to, understand that reality, it is better to not get married. What? That's so foreign to your brains right now. You know why? Because you have been swimming in a Western culture that is obsessed with romance obsessed with marital relationships. And that has trickled into the Western evangelical church that is obsessed with marriage. I don't know what it is about what all, I think it's because churches want to attract families. They're obsessed with marriage. Marriage kids, marriage kids, youth groups, kids programs, blah, blah, blah. That's all they want to do. And Jesus is going, yeah, well, maybe it's actually better to stay single. And we're all like, what? That's not, Jesus can't have said that. Singleness is, of course, just something you do while you're waiting to meet your spouse, right? Of course, the the ultimate thing a Christian could do would be married because, I mean, Paul was married. Oh, wait. Oh, Jesus was married. Oh, wait. I mean, wait a minute. So so there's a paradigm shift that needs to happen here, okay? Jesus says, hey, if it's been given for you to understand this, this truth that singleness is such a blessing, then great. And then Jesus says one of the weirdest Jesus-y things he ever says in verse 12. He says, this is so weird. Any, I mean, anytime you start talking about eunuchs, it gets weird, right? Verse 12. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, 
And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. What is Jesus getting at here? He starts talking about eunuchs? What Jesus is saying here is he's, he's, he's saying, look, there is a gift of singleness. There is a gift of singleness. And there's lots of different ways you can come across this gift. He gives three. One, one way is that you're born that way. Okay? Uh, one way is, is simply that you didn't have a, a choice in the matter. You know Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego? You know those guys? They were probably eunuchs uh, because they worked for the king. The king didn't want any of his um, you know, guys sleeping around with his harem. So off it goes, right? Um, so that's the reality. I'm sorry, that was a little crass. Um, but <laughs> but you, know, you know what I mean. Um, sorry, you got a 32-year-old pastor, you know. <laughs> This is what it is. Uh, so the, these guys, they, did they have a choice in the matter? No, they, they're, they're, they're born that way. Now, on a serious note, there are people, on a serious note, there are people that are born with same-sex attraction, and they're Christians. What do they do with that? They're not attracted to women. What do they do with that? Uh, well, I think this passage would tell us that they embrace the reality that they are to live single. And, you know, there are a lot of Christian men and women that are doing that, and they're doing it to the glory of God. And they're doing it very well. And we ought to honor those people. We ought to, ought to shame them because of, of a sin proclivity. You know, we all have sin proclivities. Everybody in here was born with a sin proclivity. You know, some, of it, some of you is lying. Some of you, it's lusting. Some of you, it's um, pride. Some of you, whatever. Everybody has a sin proclivity. So, so some people are born and they are born into this. You know, this is the reality of living in a sinful world. We were born with a sin nature. And so it could be for those people that they, they get to live a life of singleness for the Lord. Now, there's another category Jesus lists, and that's those who were made eunuchs. And I think what Jesus is getting at there is, is those who, who have been sinned against in such a way where they, where they are thrust into singleness. Where, where it wasn't your choice to be single. Someone else made that choice for you. That's called sin. This world is a world where sinners are sinfully sinning against sinners. We are sinners and we sin. We're being sinned against and we're sinning against others. And some of us, um, you know, may have gone through divorces because we were sinned against. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Some of you may be single right now because your spouse chose to cheat on you, chose to leave you, chose to abandon you. I, I don't know. But I'm sorry for that. Um, but that is the reality that God wants to now redeem. And he wants to be what you need in that. The third category is those who would choose to be single. Those who would say, you know what? I don't need to get married. I would like to say something. This church, we will honor single people. I love marriages. I have a beautiful marriage. I have three beautiful kids. I love watching single people serve Jesus. It's amazing. Because you know what it does? It, it, it gives them this special amount of time and attention that they can give to the Lord and his work. It's so cool, and we ought to honor it. We ought to elevate it. I think that part of the reason, now this is me guessing here, I think part of the reason that divorce rates are so high, both in the culture and in the church, is not because we haven't made marriage significant enough. It's because we've made it too significant. We've tried to make marriage something that it simply cannot be. And because of that, we have people that are married wanting to divorce because they think this thing isn't fulfilling me like I thought it was. You know, my spouse just isn't, they're just not making me happy, so maybe I'll try another one. And because of that, we have people in the church who are getting married younger and earlier than they should to people they don't even necessarily want to marry just because they feel this pressure to be married. Because the church and the world is putting that pressure on them. 
And I just would love to see that released. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying if you're single, stay single. Now, hey, this isn't the Lord's word. Let me just, let me just say what Paul says, okay? Paul, 1 Corinthians 7. I love Paul. He has these moments where he goes, hey, this isn't God speaking, but can I just give you some opinions? Like, he, so here's what he does here. He says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no commandment from the Lord, but I give my judgment. I got some thoughts, right? Um, as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Uh, I would encourage you to study this more later, by the way. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 26. I think that in the view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bond or are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. <laughs> this is Bible. I'm just, yeah, it's crazy. Paul's just honest. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What is, why would he say that? What kind of marriage advice is that? Hey, if you're married, live like you're not married. What? Did that get slipped in here? Is that in your translation? What is he talking about? Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, those who buy as though they had no goods. Jesus is saying, or pardon me, Paul is saying marriage isn't the point. It's good. God made it. What's the point? Jesus is the point. Read on, 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it for the present time or for the present form of this world is passing away. This is all going. It's all going to burn. It's all going. God's coming back. He's going to recreate. We're going to see an eternal kingdom set up. Verse 32, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. Now listen, this is key. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. He's saying, this isn't saying you can't get married. This isn't saying you shouldn't desire to get married. Okay, He is saying, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. That's the point. So Jesus is standing before this group that wants to talk about whether to smack an Apple Watch against a rock or a tree. And Jesus is like, no, you're missing the whole point. Guys, this isn't a passage about divorce. This is a passage about idolatry. The idolatry of putting a desire for romance and sexuality and intimacy and, 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 and anything and kind of corporate affection that you have in front of the Lord. That's the problem. That's what Jesus is, is like a good surgeon. That's what he's trying to, to put his finger on. He's like, you guys have made marriage such a big deal that divorce is rampant. When really what needs to happen is you need to make the Lord the point. You need to live for him. Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying the same thing. If we saw our union with Jesus as the superior reality, the superior reality, then our marriages would be healthier, our singles would be healthier, our divorce rates would be lower. Because most of the divorce we see in our culture is not because of infidelity, it's because I'm bored, or this is dysfunctional, or this is hard. The only way you're going to get through that is if the Lord is enough for you. 
the key, it's very odd, but the key to marriage is to not make marriage the key. The key to marriage is to make Jesus the key. Amen. Amen. A lot of you guys are single, and I just want to encourage you, that's okay. That's okay. For, for whatever reason, the Lord has led a lot of single people into this church, and, and, and you're some of the most godly, Christ-exalting people, and we honor you. Some of you are married. We honor you. Marriage is hard. It's sanctifying. It's good. It's a good work. But this will not be a marriage and family-centric culture. This will be a Jesus-centric culture. Amen? Jesus didn't come into the world to put a Band-Aid on marriage. He didn't come into the world to give us more fodder for our debate about divorce. He came into the world to put sin to death. Because sin hurts, man. It's painful. Every single one of us have been the recipients of and the producers of sin. Jesus came. The gospel is not, uh, you know, go and, and be married. The gospel is go and be married to Christ. And we get to be part of that as the corporate body of Christ. And I want to encourage you guys to press into that reality. You know, marriage was created to be a type of a more supreme reality, the reality of Christ and his bride. And that is really where true satisfaction is at. Amen? Amen. Amen. Would you guys stand with me?